Good morning, Cornerstone. Let me get in my iPad here and get my notes. As Kylie said, my name is Aaron Wardle, and I'm excited to be here today to share with you my apologies. It is allergy season, and you're welcome. So uh, I'm going to be moving through this. So if you just see me kind of move off into a fog, just pray for me. I'll get back to it pretty soon. But we are in a series, Dear Corinth, where we are looking at Paul's second letter to the Church of Corinthians. And Brian's given some great messages on that in chapters 1 and 2 and 3. And we're going to fast forward and we're going to jump all the way to chapter 7. Why are we going to do that? Because a lot of the letter of 2 Corinthians weaves back and forth, and we're going to dive right into this, and we're going to spend some time looking at how Paul celebrates the way the community of Corinth responds to his correction. Yes, today, we are going to celebrate correction. So let's pray. Lord, in this moment, will you remind us of where we are? Will you remind us that we are in your presence? Will you remind us of the words you said that where two or more are gathered, you're there? Will you remind us and may experience the fact that you said that you will inhabit the praises of your people. And so as we began to praise you, you're here. I pray that today is a day not rushed. But today is a day where we are aware that we are in none other than the presence of the living God. That we sense and feel a sense of belonging And we hear your words to live out of and into our full full identity, sons and daughters of the King. Lord, I ask that you give me clarity. You know this was been a fist fight this week. And Lord, I pray that out of it all, you're glorified. For you are good and all that you do is good. Amen. I have a confession Use this as group therapy. It's cheaper. (laughs) I will often avoid hard conversations that could help someone grow for fear of tension that could be created in the relationship and hurting others' feelings. I will often avoid Stepping in to situations where I can lovingly help someone grow in an area of their weakness where they may be harming themselves and others because I'm afraid of the awkwardness of the moment. And I don't want to hurt people's feelings. Am I the only one who is like this? I am. (laughs) Spoken by a true eight. I, it is something, it is not my favorite thing about myself, but as I was sitting with this, of recognizing that there is a fear that 
wells up inside of me. I will see a place in another individual's life, and I will not step into with love to help them and maybe even prevent further harm in their life because I just don't want it to be awkward between us, and I don't like hurting people's feelings. The reason that I know that I am not alone in this is because the great Brene Brown in her book, Dare to Lead, says a lot of people are like this. In her book in 2018, she wrote and talked about as she was interviewing senior leaders at different companies, and they were talking about the crisis that was happening and preventing their companies from growing and being more innovative and more productive. One of the things that was exposed through her research was that she said most of the people said there was a lack of bravery in leadership and a lack of courageous cultures. And what that meant was that many leaders and many businesses and environments avoided tough conversations, avoiding giving honest feedback and productive feedback. And what she says is through the research, it began to have these negative attributes to the communities, began to see that there was a diminishing trust and engagement in the community because the leaders would see areas that needed addressed, but they wouldn't say anything. And so the very thing that they wanted to not happen was, I'm not going to say anything because I don't want to create distance and tension in the relationship. And by not saying something, guess what it created? Distance and tension in the relationship. And it also said it began to create these other intrinsic problems, that there was problematic behavior, including passive-aggressive behavior, talking behind people's backs, pervasive back-channeling, communicating, meeting after the meeting, gossip in the dirty yes. What Brene points out is that there is a problem that we have become afraid of one another to love each other enough to say something that will help the other person grow. The Brene points out that we love our peace more than we love another person's growth. Does that make sense? Does anybody see that in their life? And I think that one of the things as a, I'll pretend to be an armchair sociologist, that coming out of leading her book, leading into the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic and coming out of the racial issues and coming out of political conflicts and coming out of all the things over the last three years, this is ratcheted up. More and more and more. And we avoid tough conversations. Oh, sure, every once in a while we'll lob a, a grenade at someone and go like, hope that fixes things. But instead of stepping in and loving a person enough to say, I love you more than I love my comfort. And I see something in you that needs changed. And I'm going to love you enough to say it. As we look around, as I know in my life, and I even look in our church, I look in our communities, I see evidence of this all over the place. And then we come to 2 Corinthians, and Paul flies in the face of it. It says that he had external conflicts and he had internal fears, but the apostle Paul breaks in and he refuses to be polite and nice. He's going, I don't want to be just polite and nice. I want to love you so much that I want to believe and speak to you in such a way that you grow in who you are and whose you are into your identity. 
And the Apostle Paul flies in the face of his own fear, risking relational tension, risking hurting people's feelings because he looks at the people of Corinth and he goes, I love you. And you got some things you need to change because you're harming yourselves, you're hurting others, and you're hurting me. And so he steps in. Let's read this together. <coughs> Excuse me. 2 Corinthians 7, 2 through 11, make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We've exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I've said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would, not li that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our trouble, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforts us by coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. And then he drops this bomb. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Oh. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurts you, but only for a little while. That's like slang for sorry, not sorry. When I read this, I was offended. He's like, hey, I don't care that I hurt your feelings. Okay, so I care a little bit, but I'm glad I hurt your feelings because I like the result of it. I think I was so offended because it's going, the people pleaser in me, I just felt the room like, oh my word, this is a really awkward situation. And why are you doing this, Paul? And Paul's going, because I love them. I love them so much that I will step into the awkwardness so that they're better. Even if I have caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy. Not because you were made sorry, because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended. And so you were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. In the middle of his letter, Paul writes, and this is just echoes through history, this revolutionary fly in the face of fear to say, perfect love casts out fear. I'm going to step into a situation with people I love and say something that may sting because I'd rather it sting in this moment than lead to further pain for you. Oh, man, the conviction of reading this text for me this week, going back to study, I was just like, Lord, please don't make me. Because I began to think of multiple relationships, close and far, present and past, where I have loved my own comfort more than I have loved them to allow them to grow. And I am sorry, because the Lord was naming names. And I think I'm not alone in this. But the Apostle Paul reaches throughout history and the Spirit of God reaches to us today through 2 Corinthians and goes, let's cut that out. 
Let's not be afraid of each other so much. Let's love one another enough to say something when we see harmful, hurtful behavior in another individual. And I think the Apostle Paul offers us a powerful model on this, and I'll be brief, but I want to dive into these things. This sounds repetitive, but the first thing that we must do to step past our fear is that we have to love them enough to address the issue. The motivation isn't to tell someone off. The motivation isn't to get something off your chest. The motivation is to go, I love you enough that I will step into your life and I will say something because I think you're headed for some trouble. The Apostle Paul had a committed relationship with the church of of Corinthians. We see that he is the one that started that church. He moves into Corinth, and Corinth is an interesting city because it's very progressive, highly educated, affluent, busy. Does that sound familiar? Any cities you know that sound like that? There's one south of Longmont that sounds a little bit like that, but... uh, But one of the things, and Paul steps into this place, and he begins to love them. Up to this point, this is the longest place Paul has ministered, a year and a half. He stays put to be with them, to nurture them, to grow them. And then after a while, he gets into it with a religious leader, a political leader, and he has to leave. But even after he leaves, he sends letters, he makes visits, he sends people that are trusted. He's highly committed to the people of Corinth. They're precious to him, and he loves them. And so, after he leaves, things begin to get a little rough for the church of Corinth. Now, I have to believe that it wasn't smooth sailing to begin with, because it wasn't like, dad's gone, go crazy. They probably were going crazy the whole time. But when Paul leaves, Chloe sends him a letter and says, "Uh, Paul, it's not going real well. He stays in contact with, with the church. She's one of the leaders of the church, and she lets them know, like, there's major conflict going on in the church. So much so, they're suing each other. They're taking each other to court. Imagine, like, you know, you go into a service and the awkwardness for a pastor to look out and go, I know that person is headed tomorrow to court to sue that person. And the tension that's created. Then you have issues of like, you know what? I don't like this leader. I like a different one. Then there's a spiritual arrogance where there was a group of them saying, hey, I just want to let you know that I'm filled with the spirit and it doesn't look like you are. And I have the gift of discernment and tell that you are not as good as I am. Oh, you don't have that gift? Obviously, you don't have the Holy Spirit then. And then there's sexual immorality. And it's not just kind of like your everyday. They got some weird stuff going on, and Paul is having to address it. And you can read that on your own time. Then they go into the treatment of the poor, the treatment of the other church. They've got a lot of things going on. But Paul loves them so much that he re-engages with them. I have to be honest that if I left Corinth and I heard about this mess, I'd be like, see you guys. Hope you figure that out. No thanks, I don't want to step back. But Paul loves them so much, even though there is tension in relationship, even though there's a fear of hurting their feelings, he enters back into that relationship and says, guys, we've got some stuff we need to deal with. And he's committed to them. And he leverages the equity that he has built up with them, and he cashes in that equity for their own change. Does that make sense? 
The equity, relational equity that he has built up by showing himself faithful to them. He steps in and goes, hey, this is going to sting a little bit, but there's some places in your life in, with sexuality, with spirituality, with your economics and your relationships, and we need to step in, and you guys, this is, we've got to grow here, and it's got to change. And so Saul, Paul steps in enough, and he's, first off, he's motivated by pure love. It isn't just because, hey, you're tarnishing my record as a church planner. You're making a mess of my record. But he's motivated by love to step in and say, you guys, you've got to change these things. The next thing that he does, we see that he risks the awkwardness and the tension for the growth of the others. My friend and I, who's here visiting from Ohio, we went to seminary together, and it was just a beautiful time, and I was, last night we were just chatting, and we are kind of discussing this, and we were just saying, why is it so hard for us to say something? Now, I know some people in my life, they love to say something, and if that's you, we have other messages for you. This one's not for you today. But why is, and you know who you are, there are people who are like, that's me, that's me. Praise be to God. Um... Why is it so hard to say something? Because I, you know, I don't know about you, but when you know there's like, I've got to say something to this person. I can't let this go on. And the tension that it almost feels like a fog is between. It almost feels like two magnets that are backwards. You know, when the polar opposite, every time I get around them, it's like, oh, please, God, no. Oh, I see that person. But there is this awkwardness and there is this fear but loving the other person enough to allow perfect love to cast out fear instead of our fear to cast out love. I confess, and I think some of us need to confess, we've allowed our fear to cast out perfect love. And the result of it has been the very relationship we didn't want tension in and distance now has tension and distance because we didn't say anything. But Paul's motivated by love. He presses into the awkwardness. He's committed. Like I said before, he's lived with them. When he wrote 1 Corinthians, and scholars believe there are four letters, not just two. That's free. So, but one of the things is after he writes the letter of 1 Corinthians, correcting them on these things, it's like three or four years before things get better. He stays with them. He writes another letter. He sends Titus. He goes and visits. It even says sometimes, he's like, I was about to visit. It's a good thing I didn't. But he was so committed to them. He says, I'm going to see this process through. That I'm going to say something to you, and then I'm not letting go. I'm going to step into the mess of your life and where you are not living from your identity. I'm going to say something, and then I'm going to stay put. Because oftentimes we like to do like a drive-by rebuke. Better change that. See you later. Let me know. But Paul stays committed. He's motivated by love, presses into the awkwardness. Now, with each one of these things, I think that there is a danger for us and a fear for us. And I mentioned this before. Why don't we say something when we see a behavior in a person that needs to change, that needs to grow? I think for me and for many, we're afraid of rejection, aren't we? You could, re you could reject me. Though I'm trying to help you, you could be like, I don't want you in my life anymore. And that's terrifying. But again, going back to that point of saying, I love you enough to risk our relationship because I want to see you be the best version of yourself. 
I want to see you walk in your identity in Jesus. I want to see you be the son and daughter of the king that you really are. And so I'll step in even though, man, things may never be the same. Well, I hope things are never the same. I hope they're better. Paul models for us love enough to address. The next thing that we see is Paul models for us that we do this through correction, not condemnation. Now, that's not fancy like preacher for like balancing some words, but there's a real difference. It's more than semantics. Condemnation is saying you are bad, and I want to let you know that. That's condemnation. It's an identity statement. Correction would be, hey, you know what? You're better than this, and you're not living out of who you really are. You see the difference? One's a behavior. One's an identity. Condemnation rebukes the identity of a person and says, this is the way you are. You know, if our life is a garden, it's saying, your garden's a mess. That's condemnation. Correction is saying there's weeds in your garden that are choking out life. Specific. And that's what Paul does. And he says, I do not say this to condemn you. I've said before that you have such a place in our hearts that I would live or die with you. And he reminds them who they are. The beginning of the letter of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, what he says to them, he's like, hey, you're a holy people. He's about to give a letter of a people who have a lot of weeds in their garden. And it isn't just like, you know, let me say some nice things and then some harsh things. He's beginning from the posture of like, let me remind you of who you are. And then let me show you the dissonance of how you are not living like who you are. So Paul steps in. You're a holy people. You know who you guys are, Church of Corinth? You know who you guys are, Church of Cornerstone? You guys are a holy people. You're sons and daughters of the living God. It says that he will be your God and that you will be his people. He says he will walk amongst you and he will live with you. That's who you are. So because you're that, I want to point out a couple areas where you're not living out of that. And so he brings correction, not condemnation. Paul brings an awareness to the places where they're not. And then he gets very specific. I like what he says. I spoke to you frankly on these things. They're not wondering, like, what do you think about this, Paul? He's going, hey, that thing that's going on between you and your stepmom? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's not good. The way you're taking someone else in the church to court, not good. The way that you are lording over these and saying, nanny, nanny, foo-foo, I got the spirit and you don't. And look at all my spiritual gifts and don't you wish you were like me? That's not good. He gets very clear and specific. Brene Brown, in fact, that article is clear as kind. And the idea of we don't give half-truths and we also don't beat around the bush, but we're very specific to say, hey, this is a place where I see you not living out of your identity. And I, there's a dissonance between who you are and how you're acting. And I think it's hurting you and it's hurting others. The barrier to this is of correction over condemnation is, and forgive me for another C, it's just the way my mind works, we contaminate our correction because of our frustration. When I have a situation and I'm a f nervous, this is gonna be a surprise to you, 
My energy level amplifies. Peter had to tell me to calm down and focus this morning because I'm like, I'm ready to go. Here we go. Let's do this. So I will amplify out of my nervousness. When I'm in a tough situation and there's going to be conflict, guess what I often do? I amplify. And so I will contaminate my correction. And sometimes I do it intentionally because it's like, hey, I just want to let you know you're really annoying as well. And I just want this to hurt a little bit. And so instead of it just being like a scalpel to remove, it's just like, this, I just like, let me give, just a little extra on there. We're laughing because how many of us do that? Let me let it stink and hurt a little bit too, just because I'll feel good as well. Praise be to the Lord. But what we do in that is we'll contaminate the correction with our own frustration. So we have to really be in a place of centered and prayerful to go like, this isn't about me. This is about allowing the Lord to speak something to someone else. So I step into it and I love them enough to not contaminate the message with my own frustration or condemnation. Because it's easy when people start getting defensive, isn't it? When you're trying to highlight a place where they're being harmful or hurting themselves or hurting others and they start getting defensive and you're like, oh, you, you want to make this about us now? So love enough to address correction over condemnation condemnation. The next thing that we see um, from Paul, he models this for us, to step past the fear, to love someone else, is let sorrow lead to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, so we're not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. There's a book, um, by a local author, um, Jim Wilder and Michael Hendricks. They've written a book, The Other Side of the Church. Um, <clears throat> and they talk about something that I'm, I don't like the way they articulate it, but it's so right, and that's why I need to step into it. But they talk about healthy shame, that there's toxic shame and there's healthy shame. I hate all shame. Shame's not a fun thing. But what they say is that in our brains, there are times where we have to experience what is healthy shame, and that's saying there's a dissonance between who you are and how you're acting, and it's appropriate for you to feel bad. Because when we feel bad and we feel sorry, it leads to a change in behavior. In our brain chemistry, when we have something begin to cause us to lose joy, we don't want to have that anymore, do we? So it motivates us to get that thing out of our life so that we can regain joy. And that's the thing that we step into. Paul steps into this and he's going, I'm not going to give toxic shame where I'm condemning you and saying this is, I'm wanting you to feel guilt. I'm wanting you to feel, feel all of these things. What I want you to do is I want you to feel a healthy shame that you're feeling the dissidence between who you are and how you're behaving. Because what happens is in your brain, it actually kicks off the chemicals to say, I want to change because I don't want to experience that anymore. Does that make sense? And so the thing that Paul does, without the blessings of having classes in neuroscience, is he allows the people to sit in their sorrow. He allows them to feel bad. And he stays right there. And he allows their sorrow to, between, to be between them and God 
and to lead them to a change of mind and a change of behavior. But I think it's so profound when, when Paul says, like, hey, I don't regret making you feel bad. Because that was the motivation that brought the transformation. And I praise God. Friends, that is so hard to do when you say something and you see that someone feels bad and it has actually caused them sadness or it has caused them frustration. But Paul just sits there in it with them and he allows them to feel sorrow that leads to remorse, that leads to repentance, that leads to redemption, which has no regrets. He knows, I'm gonna stay in the awkwardness of this moment because it's for your own good and it's not about me. The other thing that Paul does is in this is he endures a whole lot of misplaced, displaced emotion. When he tells the church of Corinth about these things, they don't go, thank you, O wise one. We will apply these lessons to our life now. No, they throw a fit. They're like, what are you talking about? You don't know what's going on. They blame others. They blame each other. We like Apollos more than you. They even go so far to say to one another, now, is he really an apostle? They turn on him, and their defensiveness becomes aggressive against him. And what does Paul do? Stays. Endures the defensiveness. Explains, but doesn't excuse it. Sits in it. Lets them feel their sorrow absorbs their defensiveness so that they can grow because of the next point. He trusts that God has to lead the process of transformation. I'll deliver the message, but God brings the transformation. He said this, see what godly sorrow has produced in you. Oops, wrong places. Um, for you became sorrowful as God intended and godly sorrow brings repentance. What he's saying is, I'm just bringing a message that I have prayerfully talked to the Lord about. And now I'm going to let you sit in your sorrow because that's going to help you bring about the change you need to bring about. I'm going to endure your misplaced and displaced emotions until you can get to a place to repent and to change. And if you look at the timeline, this is years. Now I'm hoping for us at Cornerstone, as we create a courageous culture, where we will step past our fears and step into love others, that it isn't years that we have to endure this. But Paul models for us, I'm so committed to you that I'm going to stay in this. Even as you attack me, even as you sit in your sorrow, because I believe there's a transformation that's coming. So what's the ditch that we can fall in? What's the barrier? One of the things is when people start to feel bad when we say something, we rescue them. I don't like seeing people suffer, especially when it's me pointing out something in their life and going, I'll be like, well, maybe it's not as bad as I think, you know, I don't know, but just, you know, and we water it down and we try to save them from their feelings. Paul shows us, don't. Let them sit in it. Don't rescue. The next thing we see, another ditch is, obviously, when they start getting really defensive and start attacking us, don't reject them. The tendency would be to reject them. I'm out of here. But Paul models for us, stay in the middle of it so that you can have the next thing and the next thing, and this is my final point. Celebrate the change. 
Paul sticks around long enough to celebrate with them. The end of what I read, it says, see what godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. He's given like holy high fives through the text. You did it. This is awesome. And even before, in other places, he's saying, yeah, it was worth it all. Those four years of tension, it was worth it all. Because I've watched what happens, and your sorrow has led you to repentance, and now you are living in a different way. And Paul, in his brilliance, circles back around. Most of us would be like, let's just move on and never bring that up again. How about that? But he doesn't do that. He goes, I want to revisit because I want to tell you I'm proud of you. This is what happened, and I'm so proud of you. The other thing he does does is he celebrates incremental growth. Because if you read the whole book of 2 Corinthians, there's still a long way for them to go. But he celebrates. Hey, I see you changed in this area. I know you were sad. That was a bummer. And I know that it was tough, but I'm so proud of you. And so for us... As a people, I think that there's an invitation from the Apostle Paul for the people in this room, the people that were in this room before, and the people that are in our community to begin to be a courageous community that steps past the fear of tension in relationship, past the fear of hurting one another's feelings, to love each other so much that we lead each other into who we truly are. I am grateful for individuals in this room And in my life, who stepped past the fear, and they said something. One was really transformational this past year. Individual stepped in and said, hey, the way you talk to people is condescending. You don't know what you're talking about. My instant reaction. Oh, is that what you mean? But one of the things that began to happen is I began to look at some of the culture that I lead and there was aggressive talk and condemnation in the way we talk to one another. And guess who was the catalyst of that? Me. Started with me and I set it downstream and it became a part of our culture. And so one of our individuals in our community had to step in and say, hey, you've got to stop that. That's not living from who you really are and that's not who we want to be. And so you got to do a lot of cleanup. There was like an oil spill and that, sending <laughs> that. But going like, hey, we don't talk to each other that way anymore. And needing to change. And I am so grateful. And when I fall into it, they say that. But the change that they brought by saying something to me brought change to our community. I'm grateful for that. That's what I want for all of us that we're revolutionary in our homes, in our workplaces, in our businesses, in our churches, in our schools, that people look at us and say, you have this amazing thing. You correct one another, but it isn't aggressive. And it seems like you guys respond to that amazing. Well, we're trying to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and model Paul who's imitating him, and this is the lesson we've learned. And so as the band comes up, I want to pray for you. There's two groups. 
Um, if we could bring lights down and just like less. And I'll, I'll be the first to, to, to do this, but I think some of us need to repent of loving our comfort more than we love other people enough to have them change. And so I think we need to go before the Lord as he brings conviction through that and say, Lord, I'm sorry. And so, Holy Spirit, you're in this place. And, Lord, I hear you say you are my sons and daughters. I hear you say you are my holy people. You are holy and blameless. You are bought with a price. But there is dissonance between who you are and how you're living. And so, for those of us in the room, would you just go before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I've let fear cast out love. And maybe there's a specific relationship that's on your mind that you need to just confess to the Lord. I'm sorry, Lord, that I've, I've allowed potential tension and awkwardness and hurt feelings to keep me from helping someone be who they truly are. I don't want to do that anymore. For a second group of people, there are individuals who have a real phobia of tough conversations. And I want to pray courage over you. So if you're in that place and you just be vulnerable and honest and just open your hands, I want to pray a blessing. That the Lord will bring courage to you. Lord, I pray for my friends. That you will fill them with courage. That you'll motivate them with love that they will love you and love others so much that they'll step into those tough conversations. That they'll allow others to sit in their sorrow and they'll stay put. Lord, I pray you give them wisdom and courage to press past their fears to love. And finally, Lord, I ask for all of us that on the other side of this coin we will be a people who are open to correction and that we don't make it so hard on people to give correction that we'll be humble and open and ready to receive that and that that will be a part of creating a courageous culture here at Cornerstone that loves enough to address that brings correction, not condemnation, that lets sorrow lead to repentance and celebrates every increment of change that happens in a person's life. Lord, I pray these things in your precious name. Amen.